Welcome to Overlooked. My name is Yemi, and I'll be your host for the show. Released weekly, I share Overlooked stories from around the world with you. This will include the good, the bad, the weird, and sometimes the absolutely hilarious. Come back often, share with your friends, and feel free to add the podcast to your regular podcast rotation, wherever you get your podcasts. If you come across stories or articles that you think should be featured here, please don't hesitate to share them. Now, it's time for this week's episode. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode. I always feel like I have to say welcome because in my head we're about to sit down, have coffee or something, and just chat about all the stuff that has been going on. So, I hope you have been doing well. The first season of the show has been going pretty well, as I would say anyway. From zero podcasting experience to now having over 30 episodes. With that in mind, the very last episode of the season will be released two weeks from today, on Monday, November the 16th. On that episode, I'll look back through some of the popular stories from season one, and I'll also respond to any questions and comments that you may have. So, if you do want to get featured on the show, send a message on either Instagram or Facebook through the company page Tunuka Media. It is spelled T-U-N-U-K-A Media. Anyway, let's kick off this week's episode. And a good place to start is with a story that shows that persistence and with the right tools in place, justice can finally prevail and victims can actually have their say. So, Nixium's founder, Keith Renui, was sentenced Tuesday to 120 years in prison for his role in leading a criminal enterprise that included a cult-like sorority where women were sexually exploited and branded with his initials. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York announced the sentence. Back in 2019, 60-year-old Keith was found guilty on charges of sex trafficking of children, conspiracy, racketeering, forced labor, and possession of child pornography. He was arrested in 2018 in Mexico after traumatized members who had escaped Nixium raised their voices against him. He later sought refuge in the U.S. On paper, Nexium is an American multi-level marketing company based in New York. The company offers personal and professional development seminars of large group awareness training via what it calls its executive success programs. The company has, however, been branded as a cult. The actress, Alison Mack, from the TV series Smallville, was one of Ranieri's top companions. She also pleaded guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy charges for her part in recruiting women to the cult in 2018. Her sentencing has not been announced yet. Ranieri and Nexium were recently subject to HBO's documentary series called The Vow. I first came across Nexium through CBC's multi-part podcast series called Escaping Nexium. I have purposefully left out the details of what himself and his companions like Allison did to some of the women in the cult. If you do want to hear some of it, go and listen to the podcast series Escaping Nexium or HBO's documentary series called The Vow. And it goes into a lot more detail than I'm willing to go into here. I can only hope that if victims can now have a sense of closure and relief, given all the things they were reportedly put through. Zimbabwe's cabinet has now approved proposed legislation that would make it a crime for activists or any Zimbabwean 
to make what the government is calling unsubstantiated claims of human rights abuses. It will also now be illegal to hold anti-government protests that could draw international attention or to speak with foreign governments without prior state approval. The approved proposal is an amendment to the Criminal Law Codification and Reform Act. Analysts have said that the authorities appear to be going after charities and political opposition. The Information Minister, Monica Mutswanga, told reporters that a proposed law will also criminalize protests that happen at the same time as major international, continental, or regional events or visits happening in Zimbabwe. She also said that unsubstantiated claims of torture and abductions that are concocted to tarnish the government's image will be prosecuted. President Mnangagwa and his officials recently accused non-governmental organizations of working with Zimbabwe's political opposition and foreign governments to try and topple his administration. He said anti-government protests and international sanctions are threats to his government. Non-governmental organizations, on the other hand, have accused the president of going back on his promise to make Zimbabwe more democratic when he took power in 2017. Blessing Vava, director of Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition, a grouping of more than 80 organizations that includes labor, church, and student groups, has called the amendment a calculated attempt to silence critical voices and part of a broader agenda to entrench a de facto one-party state. According to Ms. Vava, non-governmental organizations have been instrumental in exposing human rights abuses, and the current proposal by the government appears to be a way to criminalize their work. This law comes after Zimbabwe accused the U.S. of interfering with its internal affairs after a journalist named Hopewell Chinoo was arrested in July of this year after exposing alleged corruption. The story was widely shared on social media after he live-streamed his arrest. In other instances, the main opposition, Movement for Democratic Change Party, has accused the government of abducting and beating its opposition members. The women were later rearrested in June and charged with lying about being abducted. While the proposed amendments still have to go to parliament for debates and voting, before the president is able to sign it into law, the ruling party has majority of both chambers, so it is widely expected that it would pass without a hitch. 50 countries, yes, that is 5-0, 50 countries have ratified or signed onto an agreement or an international treaty to ban nuclear weapons, according to the UN. Some of the ratifying nations include Nigeria, Thailand, South Africa, Mexico, Austria, and New Zealand. Nuclear armed states, including the U.S., Russia, China, Britain, and France have not signed onto the treaty and, in fact, oppose it. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that the treaty's entry into force that is expected to take place on January 22, 2021, crowns a worldwide movement to draw attention to the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons. And it is a tribute to survivors of nuclear explosions and tests, many of whom have advocated for this treaty. While some nations have not yet adopted it, the fact that it passed the drawing board and entered into international law signifies the resolve of those governments committed to the abolition of nuclear weapons. Setsuko Turlo, who is now 88, is one of the last survivors of the bombing of Hiroshima and has been a strong campaigner of the treaty as a founder of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. ICANN won a Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 
for their efforts to establish a treaty that was launched in July that year. A living witness to the horrors of nuclear war, Thurlow was a 13-year-old girl when the United States dropped an atomic bomb on her city of Hiroshima. Her powerful speeches have inspired countless individuals around the world to take up the action for disarmament. Let's go back to the beginning, as it appears to be a very good place to start. Honestly, I was just looking for a way to sneak in the sound of music. It's one of my favorite musical. But yes, transatlantic cargo ships appear to be going back to their sails. See what I did there? <laughs> a wind-powered super sailboat that may be able to carry 7,000 cars across the Atlantic is being built. A Swedish consortium, including KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Maritime Consultancy SSPA, and lead ship designers Wallenus Marine, has developed the wind-powered car carrier, or WPCC for short. Right now, 90% of the world's merchandise is transported by shipping. And although shipping is better for the environment than air freight, according to certain measures, cargo ships are responsible for about 2% of energy-related carbon emissions across the world. The only downside of using wind power is that it would take twice as long to cross the Atlantic. Typically, cargo ships' journey takes about 7 days, but the WPCC would take about 12. The new ship will run entirely on wind energy. It is essentially what you would call a massive sailboat. So while wind power has been used on smaller sailboats for many, many years, the new technology harnesses wind power for massive, massive cargo ships. The team behind the design also believes that this new technology can be applied to cruise ships. We're going to have to wait some time to see the ocean bird make its mating voyage. However, the design of the ship will not be ready until the end of 2021, according to the company behind it, while a fully built vessel isn't scheduled to appear until the year 2024. Would you like to own a home in Italy for a starting bid of just over one US dollar? Hmm? The town of Salemi in Sicily is looking to draw in new visitors by auctioning off abandoned houses with opening bids of $1.18. The beautiful town is located in the slopes of Mount Rose between Mazzaro River and the River Grande. Mayor Domencio Venuti said that the scheme is part of efforts to revitalize the town. It is part of a plan that is taking place across struggling towns in Italy. The purchase is conditional though, so anyone that buys the dilapidated homes for next to nothing will be doing so on the condition that they are going to renovate the properties. Interested buyers will not be required to visit the town before purchasing, but they will definitely be asked to submit detailed renovation plans to prove that they are committed to the revitalization effort. So, if you are interested, I have left a link to where you can look at the various properties up for sale, or you can just visit salami.gov.it forward slash commune. Voting in Gambia is not like it is anywhere else in the world. Instead of ballot boxes, voters use marbles. The glass marbles represent ballot papers, and there are no ballot boxes, but they have what is called ballot drums. Each candidate gets a metal drum, and it is painted in a particular color with their photograph and symbol on it. According to Gambia's Independent Electoral Commission, or IEC, during voting, an eligible voter receives the voting marble from a polling officer and the voter then enters the voting booth and drops the marble in his or her chosen seal drum. A bell that rings every time a marble is dropped is attached to the 
end of the tube inside the drum. The ring prevents people from voting multiple times. The main obvious advantages of this unique voting system is that it is simple, it is affordable, and it is locally owned. Gambian voters are well acquainted with it, and it is reputably difficult to rig. The system was introduced in the 1960s to ensure that everyone had their say in a country where they have very high rates of illiteracy. But it seems like the era of marbles is about to come to an end. The IEC has now said that at the next presidential election, which is scheduled for the end of 2021, Gambians will lose their marbles and start using paper ballots instead. The IEC has said that the marble method has become a logistical nightmare. With one, two, or three contestants, it was easier to manage. But now that they have many more candidates, managing the drums have become way too complicated. There are 16 parties which registered candidates and more candidates who are running as independents. So getting all the drums to all the locations in all the colors will just prove way too complicated. Not all Gambians are convinced that the paper ballots are a better option. Some citizens appear to want Gambia to move to paper like the rest of the world, but others are afraid that because of high illiteracy rates and the risk of rigging, the old process works best. Had you ever heard of the marble ballot system before? It was my first time hearing about it this week. What I liked about it is that it acknowledged that there was a problem. The problem is illiteracy. It also acknowledged that everyone should have a say in how their country is governed, whether you're able to go to school or not. But it's going to be really interesting to see how they roll out the paper ballots in 2021 and if they even have enough time right now to do the education or get people familiarized with the new process. If you are in Gambia and you hear this story, feel free to reach out. Let me know what you think about the switch from marbles to paper. Are you okay with the switch or would you rather just keep your marbles? The Saudi government will grant 500,000 rials or about 133,000 US dollars to families of health workers who have passed away from the coronavirus. The grant will apply to those who worked in both public and private sectors, civilian or military, and to all nationalities. The grant will go to all those who recorded their first infection starting March 2, 2020. Saudi Arabia has lost several health workers who suffered complications arising from contracting the virus. The Saudi Ministry of Health has been providing medical staff with all kinds of support, medical equipment, and sanitized health environments in order to deal with the pandemic. This week, I learned that the teddy bear was created and named in honor of President Theodore Roosevelt. After he refused to shoot a bear during a Mississippi hunting trip in November 1902, the incident apparently generated wide national attention and was depicted in a popular political cartoon by Clifford Berryman. Morris Mitchum, a Brooklyn candy shop owner, saw the cartoon and with his wife Rose, decided to create a stuffed toy bear and dedicate it to the president who refused to shoot a bear. He called it Teddy's Bear. In our final ridiculous story this week, a class action lawsuit against Mott's Inc., who are the makers of Canada Dry Ginger Ale, has been settled for 200,000 Canadian dollars plus $18,000 in disbursement. A BC man, Victor Cardoso, alleged that the advertising slogan made from real ginger 
was misleading as the product contained no ginger. Around $100,000 of the settlement will cover legal costs even though lawyers spent more than $220,000 researching and litigating the case. The remainder of the settlement will go to the Law Foundation of British Columbia. Cardoso and the plaintiff from Alberta both received $1,500 in honorariums. A similar lawsuit in the U.S. led the makers of the soft drink to stop using the phrase made from real ginger on its package labels in the U.S. So if for nothing at all, this should give people motivation to pay really close attention to claims made by brands or companies. Attention to detail might just lead to some sort of compensation. So this is where we end this week's episode. Thank you for listening and have yourselves a great week. Thanks for listening, friends. As a reminder, the podcast is released weekly. Subscribe or follow across social media to be notified when a new episode is released. Overlooked is a Tunuka Media production, which also includes shows like Africa in My Kitchen, with more on the way. Follow Tunuka Media on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter to connect to say hi or to be on the forefront of upcoming shows and program schedules. Until next time, I'm your host, Yemi.